So writing this month's GSD Social Innovation Post on my work in Iraq was it's a really enlightening, reflective piece as it's actually taken place over the course of a decade, or a little bit more than a decade, where a lot of changes have taken place between Iraq, the U.S., and the entire, you know, quote-unquote, war on terror. The story starts, actually, though, with this very humiliating and shameful admission, I have to say. It was the spring of 2008, a little more than 10 years ago, and I was watching the news while making dinner when the story on the TV kind of catches my attention in the background. It was about Iraqi children struggling to grow up in the middle of the war zone, and I just heard before that another news report on another car bomb and another IED attack. So when I hear about these children, as I'm busy stirring the spaghetti sauce, I actually question out loud just to myself, there are kids in Iraq? Like, what are kids doing in Iraq? Like, what a dangerous place to, for kids to be. It's not a place for kids. What kind of parent would bring their kids to a war zone? And no sooner had the words left my mouth, kind of just still hanging there in midair, this wave of mortification just washes over me. It's like, oh my God. Somewhere in between the last five years of basically mind-numbing news reports and political horror stories coming out of Iraq. Insurgents, suicide bombers, Abu Ghraib prison, IEDs, Blackwater, and this endless stay the course or bring the troops home debate. I had just lost sight of Iraq as anything other than a war zone. I had completely forgotten that Iraq was a country, let alone an ancient culture. And I had forgotten that, yes, kids actually do live there too. And now it's bad enough that these kids themselves have to wake up every day in the middle of a global disaster. But the fact that I had lost sight of their mere existence, it just felt surreal to me. And yes, me, the one who's, you know, prided herself on spending years advocating for marginalized children worldwide. Yeah, me, the one who'd written volumes of global studies curriculum to help American students learn more about the larger world beyond the often very narrow confines of our communities. And uh, yeah, I'm supposed to be this expert. So at the moment, the only thing that's worse than my cringeworthy myopia was realizing that if a quote-unquote cultural expert had lost sight of these Iraqi kids' existence, then it was likely that other people probably had as well. And I think it was true. I think we had an urgent world crisis that had slowly sunk into the oblivion of American destruction. And speaking of distraction, smartphones and Twitter wouldn't even be around us every minute of the day for another four years, teaching us the real meaning of distraction. Now, also at this time, the Iraq war had only been going on for five years, which sounds pretty surreal to say, only five years. Now, while you could say the war was practically in its infancy, it was still longer than the U.S. was involved in World War I or World War II, which is another something to think about. Uh, President Obama closed out the war, so to speak, in uh, 2012, brought the troops home. But here we are now in 2019 that while the Iraq war is sort of ended, I think, it really hasn't because now we've sent 5,000 troops back there to stop ISIS, which got hold of parts of Iraq in 2014. Anyway, bottom line is 16 years later, the fact that we don't even really know if we're at war there or not is actually kind of the new normal. So anyway, this haunting realization is now just trolling my subconscious. I cannot sleep at night. But this fascinating thing happens now. This is a theory of mine. A fascinating thing happens once the seeds of discomfort become planted in any human. As uneasiness grows, a shift in our consciousness opens us up to new ideas and questions that didn't exist before. Like, what do I do now that I can't unknow what I know? So. Yeah, of course, we can always find ways to distract ourselves from the questions, but by choosing to stay open to them, 
we're also opening up ourselves to finding these almost serendipitous answers. So I didn't even really consider it a coincidence when I made this seemingly random acquaintance with this woman named Sandra Hakim. And Sandra, she was this glamorous New York City makeup artist, and she worked for celebrities and jet setters. And as a former clothing designer myself, of course, we are naturally bonding over our passion for fashion. And uh, But after learning about her early beginnings growing up in Baghdad, Sandra and I, we soon discovered that our shared interests went a lot deeper than discussing seasonal color trends. We both really cared about these Iraqi children that were hidden in the shadows of war. And uh, yeah, we have very different perspectives. We both knew that these stories of the kids were going unheard, and we both felt compelled to help them be told in person and in Iraq. And when we decided that we were going to go to Iraq and uh, find a way to help these kids, of course, people told us we're crazy. It's Iraq. It's a war. But anybody who's ever lived with creative people, uh, they know that when creative people start to become captivated by a vision, it's usually only a matter of time before something is going to manifest. Anyway, between Sandra's ability to speak Arabic, her in-country social networks, uh, my experience running children's youth empowerment programs in some far-flung and not always easy to get to locales, and then this mutual trust that our collective creativity could produce something beautiful, we decided we're going to push forward with our vision, and we're going to hope the details will figure themselves out as we went, which is how it usually is if a plan is meant to work. And the details did work out. Sandra serendipitously connected with an acquaintance named a woman named Ibti San, who in turn connected us with the Naros Children's Culture Center in Suleymaniya. And Suleymaniya is located in the autonomous Kurdish region, Kurdistan region of northern Iraq. And uh, what this center did is they engaged Iraqi children in cultural arts, music, painting, as a means to help address children's emotional needs, which is a perfect fit. This is our perfect starting point because the children in Kurdistan, we soon learned, their emotional needs were very significant. Uh, Kurdistan is protected by a UN-enforced no-fly zone since the early 1990s, which made it a safe haven from the violence of other regions, but it was definitely no stranger to strife. It was home to Halabsha, which is the town that Saddam Hussein gassed in an attempted genocide in the 1980s. It was also home to Kormel, an al-Qaeda-controlled region that was liberated by the U.S. forces in 2003. And currently, it's home to numerous IDP camps where Iraqis fleeing violence in Baghdad and other dangerous areas had been flooding into for the past several years. In fact, there were so many different groups of children affected by war in Kurdistan that when uh, directors at the center heard that a fashion designer and a makeup artist wanted to come and engage their children in a, in a unique art therapy project, they were ready to hear more. So Sandra and I also wanted to prove that fashion was more than just skinny jeans and hemline trends. We created a very cool therapeutic art project that would utilize clothing as a powerful storytelling agent. We came up with these blank paper doll templates that could be embellished with different you know, fabric scraps, trimmings, paint, and other craft materials we would supply. And what the Iraqi children would do is we, they would use these and the supplies to create characters that could help them externalize the war's effect on them. By releasing suppressed feelings, memories, and traumas, it's this cathartic storytelling experience to help them promote healing by providing an op important opportunity for others to hear their stories as well. And, um, you know, this pr project might have seemed like a kind of a fluffy, artsy-fartsy activity, but truly the importance of giving victims the safe space to share stories of trauma cannot be underestimated in helping begin the healing process. And uh, this description that I actually have, like for how the human condition operates is like, say someone had their hand 
cut in an electric fan or something. And just having somebody else say, wow, your hand is cut in an electric fan, that must really hurt. It actually helps, you know. But imagine if your hand is caught in an electric fan and nobody ever mentioned it. They just smile at you and say, hey, how's it going? And then walk by. And if nobody ever mentions it, then, like, would you start wondering if it's supposed to be normal or is this pain just your imagination? Because nobody else is, like, thinking that you should feel hurt. But, you know, of course, then when it's called out and somebody says, hey, you know, I don't even know if I can help you, but just tell me how bad that hurts. Even if I can't fix it, I just want to let you know that this really sucks and your pain is a real thing. And I get that. That actually makes things feel better because at least then you don't feel like you're going crazy, which is why, you know, getting mental health support can be really difficult sometimes because people can't always see mental health issues. You know, it's it's not like your hand's stuck in a fan and uh, it's, it's stuff that's buried deep and internalized. And so people on the surface, they see you and they smile and wave and they say, how are you? And you say, I'm fine. And they're like, great, okay, everybody moves on. And that is, you know, the cycle of mental health where people then, it buries deeper. And Sandra and I wanted to give these kids a nice, easy access point to be able to say, like, you know, this is how I'm feeling, but doing it in a way that's a, a really safe and creative space in a fun, relaxing uh, way. So the directors of the center love the idea, roll out the welcome mat, and in August 2008, suitcases stuffed with supplies, Sandra and I meet up in New York City, and the next thing you know, we're flying off to Iraq. And over the course of 10 days, we met with lots of different children, and we did this project with children in IDP camps who are living in just absolute squalor and uh, danger and children who they'd flood their homes they have no idea where their family's going next their parents are distraught it was total chaos there are also children who are a lot of idp you know children families they they've left their home from the violence but a lot of them assimilate into the community they stay with friends or anybody friends of friends or neighbors of friends or relatives and so a lot of them are are we did projects with kids that are just living in homes so they're not in a a dirty dangerous camp but they're still living with this fear of like they they don't know where they are they don't know where they're going to go what's going to happen like they've seen horrible things happen they've seen terrible things happening to people that they loved and then of course the you know children who are the legacy of a genocide and like all genocides I mean that pain gets passed down from parent to child and on and on and and that lasts for generations and maybe forever yeah after 10 days of character creating and storytelling i mean the realization that iraq's children had endured so many horrific aspects of war it it made my brain hurt you know while there may have been differences in situations timelines different scope the one thing that just really was tough is these children carry these psychological burdens that were often unseen by their parents and caretakers because the parents and caretakers are struggling to make sense of the chaos themselves so that they they can't help them. They can't say, I mean, they may try to say, oh, honey, are you hurting or let's talk about it. But the children still see this fear in their parents' eyes and they know that the people that are supposed to be making the world safe for them are terrified too. There was good news that there was a common thread of hopefulness still running through a lot of the children. For every picture of a gun-toting terrorist or a child being gassed to death or a kidnapped relative, there were pictures of best friends playing together. There were clowns, self-portraits of happy, smiling kids. And, you know, children do have a resiliency. Everybody says, oh, children are so resilient. 
but it doesn't change the fact that they're vulnerable and there's still this tipping point in their lives where they will not be able to function in healthy ways as adults if they don't get the help they need. Not to mention that disengaged children are easy prey for those eager to lure them into future violence. And uh, my very last thought that I had before we left was that uh, if these kids do not get the mental health they need, the future of this whole region would be grave. No matter when the war was ever declared over and everybody goes back to their normal life. Now it's 2019. It's more than 10 years later. We've all seen the wider effects of the Iraq war. We've seen the growing sectarian violence. We've seen the emergence of ISIS and its ability to recruit disenfranchised young people from all corners of the world. And we've watched it lead to a global wave of refugees and migrants that are destabilizing much of Europe, igniting populist movements. These were actually all the things that I was afraid of. You know, while the world continues to scramble for solutions, you know, people are still trying to figure out how to help, what to do. Sandra is still out there on the front lines and among numerous stints volunteering for major NGOs helping with the refugee crisis in Greece. In 2016, Sandra helped with the creation of a really powerful documentary. It's called In My Heart, and it illuminates the plight of these three different families from Syria and Afghanistan. And the camera follows them on this journey as like a fly on the wall on how they're trying to figure out what to do, trying to get through Europe into some sort of safe haven. Anyway, these families are trying to just figure out like how to start a new life and they don't know what to do. They've got few resources and the camera operators just follow them like fly on the wall. It's it's very personal feeling because you really are with them in their reality. And anyway, there's this one scene in the movie, this boy, he's about 11 or 12 years old and his family, they'd left Syria and they're trying to get to Europe. And right at the moment they got stuck in Turkey and the borders were closed ahead and they couldn't go back and they couldn't go forward. They're trying to figure out what to do or how to go anywhere and the parents are constantly arguing about what they should do next. And the father has these ideas that they're going to get to Italy. But the mother is like, no, this is totally unrealistic. And it's and uh, they'd watch the news and they'd get all the information from WhatsApp or through, you know, other people that are the migrants on this on their journey. And it's just so painful watching the father because you know that he was once the provider of this family. He was the head of the family. And he's just slowly surrendering but not surrendering to the fact that he does doesn't know how to help the family anymore. And there's this scene where this boy is watching his father and, uh, and the father's just chain smoking and kind of mentally devolving. And, and you can see his brain is just trying to think of something. And, but he's living in denial about the reality of their predicament. And this look on the boy's face as he sat and looked at his dad, he had this mixture of like kind of sadness and pity and powerlessness. And, you know, he loves his father so much and respects him. But he's watching him deteriorate. And you just see this kid has so much stress on him. And you also know that nobody's asking him how he's feeling because, you know, and if, even if they are, they can barely hear it because they're trapped underwater too. And, you know, I just wonder, like, where will this kid end up? Not just physically, what country will he end up in, but mentally, where will he end up? And I suddenly made this connection. It's, like, ironic that while these war kids that I met and that I'm seeing on this movie, they're living with all this stress and all this pressure and people don't really know how to help them and get to get to the root of their, their feelings and their trauma. These war kids are no longer the only ones that we need to worry about. American children, they're in a war of a different kind. They are facing mental health crises of epic proportion 
And you don't have to look too far to find another article with more statistics that are so grim. And no, while these American kids may not have bombs dropping outside their doors, they live these daily lives of competitive and fast-paced schedules. And they are taking on this barrage of targeted, often very age-inappropriate media. They're, they're under constant public scrutiny through social networking. I mean, they're dealing from... Everything from bullying, body image, careers, climate change, school shootings, sexism, racism, and managing, yeah, the social media identity, which is like a whole other level of, of crazy stress that is unseen to, to, to the outside person. Today's teens are enduring unprecedented levels of anxiety, and they're really the first generation to live in this 24-7 culture of comparison. They have no escape from the daily chaos of constantly being on. Their identity is through social media. They worry that their posts won't get likes, which creates, it sounds silly, but it creates feelings of inadequacy and low self-esteem. And their fear of missing out keeps them online almost constantly. And, and somehow when every negative thing is documented digitally, their mistakes last forever. And they are socially connected yet isolated. And uh, this is true. Their depression, because I've talked to many of them, it stems from this isolation and not having the people who can help them. And I hear from teens all over the place that counselors are booked up with long wait lines and even their parents are busy. Actually, the parents are all too often falling back on the quote, you're fine. It's just a normal phase answer. And now back when, when we were teens, it kind of was a normal phase because, yes, of course, all kids have anxiety, but a lot of parents today do not understand this new mental war zone that these kids are in because we didn't live it. We didn't. We don't know. We don't know that. We didn't grow up in our vulnerable time with all that. I mean, at least the kids growing up in Iraq, they know what their pressures are, and uh, nobody's going to tell them if they're if they're feeling stressed and saying I'm struggling. Nobody's going to say, oh, you're fine. Stop overreacting. But here in the U.S., the kids, they, you know, oftentimes they get a pat on the head. You're fine. It's normal. Buck up. And then back to their devices, they go for another round of stress. And, and the whole family, they're, they're not fully re recognizing how they contribute to it. But how many times have you been in a restaurant and you see the whole family there and every one of them is engrossed in their own phone and there's no conversation? And I think everybody's seen that. Um, the Guardian actually had a recent story about a group of teens in this small town in, in the UK. The story of the teens, it's almost exactly the same. They're suffering from depression and anxiety at these alarming rates. And again, the teens who actually reach out for help, they uh, find overbooked counselors in long wait times. Anyway, these kids got together and they made a little PSA video uh, with a simple message, just trying to, trying to illuminate that these are our pressures and we have all this stress, but every time we talk to an adult, they say, cheer up, buck up, you're fine, quit making such a big deal out of it. And they have one message that the kids are, are making, and it's listen to me, just listen to me. It's the same thing. These kids are growing up in today's world. They have the same human need. They need to release their pent-up anger and fear and guilt and shame. And just like the kids in Iraq, they need to tell their stories of how life is affecting them. When we allow children to feel heard, we help them gain the inner strength they need to find the answers with themselves. We may not always be able to help them get unstuck from the fan or whatever, but by acknowledging that they're not crazy and feeling what they're feeling it makes sense, it gives them not just comfort, but it's what helps them then 
gain the mental health skills to make better decisions. And I personally worry that both of these teens groups, these Iraqi teens and these American teens or Western teens, they are also growing up in urgent world crises that have slowly sunk into the oblivion of universal distraction. And now we do have smartphones and Twitter to keep us fully distracted, which makes it 10 times worse. Uh, So the question is, where will the youth of this generation end up without the proper coping and relationship skills on both ends? This generation, they're going to end up on the world stage together at some point where they they are interacting because we're in a global world now. But we need to be able to get them the mental health that they need today. I don't have the answers, but sometimes when you pay attention to the questions, At least that's the beginning point for those serendipitous answers to be able to reach you. For more behind the scenes of my adventures in Iraq, you can become a subscriber at gsdnetwork.net. And every subscription, it does help us continue our programs empowering kids all around the world, just like the ones you heard about today.